Hello, this is Leslie Gartho Tensner, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Lawrence Levine about race ipsilocator. episode, I speak with Professor Levine, the Director of Summer Programs in Salzburg and Professor of Law at the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law about one of my favorite topics, race ipsilocator. It's a discussion between two law professors, and here's the ironic thing of all of this. Each of us remember being called on for a different case in this area of the law way back when we were in law school. It's a fun discussion between two torts professors, and I promise when you're done, you'll understand not only what race ipsilocator is, but how to analyze it on an exam. Once again, it's time for my plea. If you could rate us or subscribe to us on any of the platforms on which you listen to us or like us on social media platforms, I would really appreciate this. What keeps me going is knowing that I'm helping law students learn the law. And the more feedback I get, the more inspired I am. And as always, you can contact us. You can reach us at gmail at lawtofact at gmail.com or you can tweet us at lawtofact. And all of our episodes are available at all times at www.lawtofact.com. If you're listening to Law to Fact, chances are at some point you'll be taking the bar exam. Well, getting ready for the bar exam means you'll need to choose the study program that's right for you. Kaplan Bar Review will get you ready to take on test day with confidence by offering $100 off live and on-demand bar review with offer code LESLIE100. Visit www.kaplanbarreview.com today to sign up. Okay, and now here's my discussion with Professor Levine. So, well, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. Um, I, I'd love to talk with you about race ipsilocator, which is not respondeat superior. That's the other Latin word that starts with an R. <laughs> um, it so, is not. <laughs> so tell me what race ipsilocator is. Okay, well, the starting point is that it means the thing speaks for itself. And if you're like my students, they always ask, why can it not speak more clearly? <laughs> and so it seems mysterious, but it only, I think it's mysterious because it's Latin. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something alluring and, and pretentious even, and maybe kind of, you know, even a little you know, obnoxious about having a Latin phrase thrown into the, the discussion. But it's it's not that difficult a concept if we could just I wish we could rename it for you know things speaking for itself or something and then I think students would be much calmer about the uh, the concept but the idea is that there's certain situations where the plaintiff can't identify specifically what the defendant did wrong what the defendant's negligence is but it just smells like negligence. It feels like negligence. But you don't have these ability. The plaintiff can't prove the specific unreasonable conduct. So that's where reciprocal comes in. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so um, I know what I actually teach torts too. So I, I, I guess the I question, <laughs> the question <laughs> that students have most often is how does race ipsilocator configure within negligence? Is it something you talk about with duty? Is it something you talk about with causation? Where does it lie? That's a key question. And what it really is, is that res ipsa loquitur is just a form of circumstantial evidence 
So it's a way of proving the element of breach of duty. And in fact, you know, I give this clue to my students. And when I do bar lectures, I also make this point, which is res is never relevant unless you're talking about proving the element of breach of duty in the tort of negligence. Mm -hmm. So in any other context, it, has, it basically is irrelevant. So it, it's really a concept of proof, of, of circumstantial evidence. But all circumstantial evidence is evidence that allows the drawing of an inference. But with recipsa loquitur, the inference that can be drawn by the jury if it chooses to do so is that the defendant breached its duty. Right, where, where, where you couldn't otherwise prove the breach. Um, you know, there's the famous case with the barrel, right, where the barrel uh, falls out of the second-story floor, and there's no other, and no one knows who pushed the barrel out, no one knows who, how the barrel fell out. Exactly. And way, right, and the only way you can, so, so, I mean, is it fair to say that it is a, it's circumstantial evidence because this harm could not have happened without someone having been negligent? And very importantly, the second part, because I because I say to my students, in fact, I, I, the timing couldn't be better because I, I just taught this yesterday and I'm teaching it uh, to my night class tonight. And I, one of the things I say when we start about the topic of proof of breach is I said, you know, you're not going to believe me. You're going to doubt me at some point, but I'm going to tell you, even if we speak in Latin, the happening of an accident, because there's a bad result, never by itself is that enough to get a plaintiff to a jury in a negligence case. You always need something more. And then I do slip and fall cases, and then we get to recipsa. And I always have students say, wait, you're, you're wrong. It is just the happening of an accident that allows the case to get to the jury if you use recipsa loquitur. And I say, no, I'm not. Stop calling me a liar. I'm not a liar. I'm telling you the truth because you need more than that. Not only is this the sort of thing that doesn't happen absent negligence, but you have to connect the defendant. The defendant has to probably be the responsible party. And so it's huge. In fact, just yesterday, the student reciting the facts and other case you talked about, Byrne versus Bodo with the flower barrel falling out of the window, did all the facts, but left out the fact that the defendant was a dealer in flour, where they stored flour barrels. And I said to him, okay, you are humiliating me in front of the class, and you are calling me a liar. I don't know if you know you're calling me a liar. And he's like, I don't mean to call you a liar. I said, well, unless you add a fact, you're calling me a liar. Because you're telling me just because, you know, that there was this bad result, this barrel fell out of a window, it hit the plaintiff in the head, and that's all the plaintiff needs to get to the jury. And finally, another student says, no, you also have to show that this, it, it's really important that this was a, the defendant was a dealer in flour. So you can connect the defendant to the negligent act. So, all right, so let's, so let's say that I own a hotel and somebody and a chair falls out of the hotel and hurts someone underneath it. Am I responsible if I'm the hotel owner? And you, you know, you're so, this is all random. And I got, you're warming my heart because that <laughs> in law school, in law school, I don't even want to talk about how long it was. That was the case I was called on 
for in in my <laughs> course class. Isn't it amazing that you uh, never forget? It, <laughs> it, 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 it's like right. It's like I should be more sympathetic to my students because I still have post traumatic stress from <laughs> from the seventies when I was talking about and I, it was a Saint Francis Hotel in San Francisco and. Um, and there's that issue of control, right? And and the the argument in that case was that the hotel said we don't have control over this chair. It's our guests. In fact, it was a guest too. I guess it was the end of World War Two, and they were, thought they'd celebrate by throwing chairs, chairs out, out the, the window. window. <laughs> Which is they were a weird way to celebrate they were the end. Of their day, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. But there has to be this this aspect of control. It used to be in the in the old days, and I mean old days even before you know. And I'm old, and it's even before me. Is control was this really limiting concept in reciprocal So not only did you, the plaintiff to show when a flower bear, you know, that, that, that when a, this sort of thing happens, it typically happens due to negligence. So when a barrel of flour falls out the window, it's probably the result of negligence. But the courts then said, and the defendant has exclusive control. Mm-hmm. And then there were the, all these old cases where the plaintiff would sit on a stool at a bar and, due to negligent maintenance or seemingly due to negligent maintenance, but we don't know exactly what happened, but the stool would collapse. And the uh, plaintiff would try to use recipsa, and the court would say, no, 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 no exclusive control. And so now we've really relaxed that control element in the second and third restatement that it's, I, I tell my students, it's really that it's probably the defendant who's the responsible party or that the defendant has enough control over the harm-causing instrumentality that the defendant is probably the responsible party. Okay, so the first thing the student's going to look at is that it wouldn't have happened but for some negligent conduct. Like barrels of flour don't just fall out of windows, chairs just don't fall out of windows, that kind of thing. And once they decide that, then the question is whether the defendant is responsible for this negligent conduct, and they have to ask themselves, did the defendant have not exclusive control, but was it most likely? Is that fair to say that the defendant had control? Exactly. They had enough control that they're probably the responsible party. Right. And and is there is there a are there any other elements? I, there's a third element to this too, correct? There's there's arguably um, a third and a fourth. Traditionally, the third was that the plaintiff did not contribute to the plaintiff's injury, mm-hmm. and that was. Made a lot of sense in the days of contributory negligence, when there was any fault on the part of the plaintiff, and it was a total bar, that would just end the plaintiff's negligence case if if there was evidence that they contributed to their harm. Now that element basically supports the second element; it makes it more likely that the defendant's probably the responsible party. It wasn't the plaintiff who's the responsible party; it was. The defendant is probably the responsible party. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then the fourth element, again, if some jurisdictions, a minority, not you know, just to some, also require that the defendant have superior knowledge than the plaintiff about what happened, because of this idea that reciprocal is used as a device to smoke out information that the defendant has but isn't giving willingly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you know, it's funny that you were called on for Larson. I was actually called on for Ria Bauer versus Spangard. 
Um, and oh, <laughs> you get a lot. You had a much harder. You had a much harder case than I did. I got to tell you, a much harder. <laughs> well, and, and that's the case where the doctor and the nurses and the anesthesiologists were all in the operating theater. And I, th- I forgot actually what they were operating on—a hernia, I think it was. Yeah, the guy went in for an appendectomy, appendectomy. and he, he, he came out with a shoulder yeah, injury. Shoulder. In fact, he lost the use of his arm. Right. I mean, his injury was so severe that he wound up live for life, losing the use of an arm. Wow. Right. And and so the issue was if he sued the doctor, whether first of all you don't lose your the use of your arm when you go in for an appendectomy unless someone was negligent, and then the question he, becomes. Did the defendant doctor have exclusive control? And there were other people in the room, right? It's even more dramatic in a way. Because, okay, I mean, here's this case where the plaintiff is is anesthetized, right? He's going for his appendectomy, so they give him general anesthesia. And then he comes to with this bizarre neck and shoulder injury that, you know, can't wind up getting worse and worse and worse. And then the, the under traditional notions of tort law, the defendants say, okay, you need to allege what we specifically did wrong and you need to prove who did it to, who did this specific thing to you. And, and he says, the plaintiff you bar is like, well, I can't identify the instrumentality right. because I was unconscious right. and I can't, identify who there was like there were a bunch of people a dozen people interacting with me because it's the nature of of uh, medicine mm-hmm. and of course i don't know who i don't know who did this and then the defendant i think would probably concede what you said which is all right fine you know you had an expert who said the persuades us that when you go in for an appendectomy and you come out with a severe shoulder injury, it's probably the result of negligence or malpractice. Okay, we'll give you that one. But you can't show who's the responsible party because everybody you're suing, there's no chance, there's zero chance that everybody you sued hurt you. Right. In fact, most didn't. And not right. did not, most not hurt you. Most don't have any idea of what happened to you. Right. So it seems logic would be at that point the plaintiff loses the case because you just can't sue a bunch of people and say one of you might have hurt me, pay me if you don't prove you know the, the burdens on the plaintiff to prove um, what injured them and who injured them. And Resipsa can help on the what injured them, but not typically on the who injured them. But the plot thickens here because it's a special situation because you've got these medical folks who just as a matter of tradition won't tattle on each other. They won't come forward. So the Supreme Court of California says, you know, if you guys are going to complain about what we're about to do, we'll just impose strict liability on you. So, you know, shut up and don't complain. Because we're going to go wild here. We're going to shift the burden of proof to all of the defendants, everyone who interacted with this, the Yabara who's being sued. Mm-hmm. And you have to prove that you didn't cause his injury. And if you can't prove it, then you're all jointly and severally liable. Right. And, and that, and so, and that works exactly with this whole idea of race ipsiloquitur, which is as between a potentially negligent defendant and a most likely innocent plaintiff, we have to pick one of them to win and one of them to lose. So race ipsa facilitates the ability of the likely innocent plaintiff victim to win. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say 
I would add to it a little bit, which is in these situations that smell like negligence. You know, there, I mean, a lot of cases the plaintiff just can't prove the the, the unreasonable conduct, and the plaintiff loses. You know, I keep stressing to my students, we don't just go around shifting the burden of proof under the defendant when the plaintiff is unable to prove her case, because that's kind of the deal. If you're a plaintiff, you have to prove your case by a preponderance of the evidence. Right. But here, when it, there's this, this odor of, of negligence and a group of people who won't come forward that, I mean, I think Gibbar is a real stretch of res ipsa I guess I'd say. And to some extent, it's like Burton versus Bodo with the barrel falling out of the window in the sense it's designed to smoke out information and get the defendants to come forward. But in Byrne versus Bodle, we knew exactly who was probably the responsible party. So yeah, it's, but, 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 but I don't mean to interrupt, but did we? I mean, we no, knew because we, but we don't know that the, the owner of the flower company actually threw the barrel out of the window. How do we know that? Oh, absolutely. We don't know what how it happened, right. but we know that. The, but the defendant is the owner of this this flour barrel um, storage facility, so we know. I mean, it's a really good bet that they're you know they're, they're probably the responsible party, and it's ultimately going to be the, the 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 owner of the of the warehouse that's right. going to be the responsible party if their employee was negligent right through that other R word, respondent superior, they'll be on the hook. Mm-hmm. In Yabara, I mean, in Yabara, it's, it also isn't quite as dramatic and, as, and wild as it seems. Oh, I like to overstate it because I actually think it's a pretty remarkable case, but it's the right result for this context. Because and at the end of the day, the scrub nurse isn't paying damages and through insurance and respondent superior, the hospital and the surgeons are going to be on the hook for liability. It's, it's not as unfair as it might seem at first blush. Right. I agree. So, all right. So I'm a student and um, actually I gave an exam question last or two semesters ago when I taught um, torts where a doctor operated on somebody and then the um, orderly, pushed this person to her hospital bed. We don't know where a gash happened on her forehead. Um, And she went in for, I don't know, like a knee replacement or something. So you don't get gashes. But but as a student, when when asked to analyze it, um, I want, if they are looking at the liability of the doctor, they have to first identify what the doctor's duty is. And then the next thing they have to identify is what the breach is. And if you can't identify what the breach is because you don't know how it happened, is that when you first start analyzing race ipsa? That's perfect. I mean, that's good. You get an A. You get <laughs> an God. A for that. because You get an A because when I start teaching negligence, every case I start, I ask my students to identify the specific alleged unreasonable conduct. And it, the first question I ask, what does the plaintiff allege is the defendant's specific unreasonable conduct? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like sick of it. And I say to them, you know, this is gonna this, this is gonna matter for a bunch of reasons. To, you know, one is it gives you a focus on what you're gonna analyze in terms of breach of duty, but later it's gonna be really important because when you try to do it and you can't do it, you look at the case and say, Huh, 
I don't know exactly what the defendant's negligence was that led the flour barrel to fall out of the window. Or I don't know exactly what the doctor's negligence was to this shoulder injury. Then that is whispering to you or ultimately maybe yelling at you, res ipsa loquitur. This is, this is the time to think about res ipsa because without it, the plaintiff's case is dismissed. There's nothing to go to the jury on unless you have res ipsa that allows the jury to infer breach of duty if it chooses to do so. And so, and so to your point where we started, it's not that hard a concept because first you have but the two tricks I think for the student is identifying when to talk about res ipsa. And once you figure out when you're talking about it, you ask yourself the questions of whether this would have otherwise happened if, you know, that negligence is really the only reason, way to explain what happened and that the defendant had control. I'll just say the word control, not exclusive yeah. control. Control is fine. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, so that that's pretty. That you make it so clear. <laughs> you have to come to New York. <laughs> well, we'll see if, if I give my students an exam on it, Tim. We'll, we'll see how clear I was, because, <laughs> because I think it really does seem more of a mystery just because the name is so exotic. I think you're right, and I think you're all. You know, also it, it get mixed up, mixed up. When here's something funny. I was in on vacation, and I saw a sign for a store, and it said Ray Sipsa, and it had a barrel. And it was a clothing store, but they were, I said, I went in, I said, let me, I bet the owners were attorneys. And they said, how'd you know? So anyway, I thought that was pretty funny. I would love that. Yeah, that's, that's clever. I, I, that's a very famous case, that, uh, that barrel out the window case. Yeah, it really is. Well, thank you so much. Anything else you want to add? Well, it's just really fun. And, and I, I just want to underscore for those students listening that just because something's in Latin doesn't always make it the right answer. So on multiple choice questions, it's one of my favorite things. When in doubt, I just throw recipes loquitur in because it's Latin. So I figure students will pick it whether it, it's correct or not. So it really helps to know the context <laughs> where recipes loquitur applies. If it's not proving the element of breach of duty and negligence, it's not the right answer. All right, listeners, you heard it here first. That is, that's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. This is very um, helpful and informative. It was lovely to speak with you. Well, great, my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Professor Lawrence Levine on Brace Ipsa Loquitur. Once again, a reminder, we love the feedback. Please rate us, rank us, review us on the platforms on which you listen to us. Once again, a reminder that Kaplan Bar Review is offering you $100 off their live and on-demand bar review program. Just use Leslie100 as your code when you sign on at www.kaplanbarreview.com. That's it for this week. Enjoy your day. Music.